Hello, and welcome to Transfusion's monthly podcast. I'm your host, Yara Park. In today's episode, we'll be speaking with Drs. Mindy Goldman and Sheila O'Brien, who will be discussing their recent work, Implementation of Measures to Reduce Vasovagal Reactions, Donor Participation and Results. Dr. Goldman, would you please introduce yourself? Yes. Hi, my name is Mindy Goldman. I'm the Medical Director for Donor and Clinical Services at Canadian Blood Services. Thank you. And Dr. O'Brien, can you introduce yourself, please? I'm Sheila O'Brien. I'm the Associate Director of Epidemiology and Surveillance at Canadian Blood Services. Thank you. Can you summarize your study for our listeners? Maybe I'll start and then Sheila can jump in. So our study is really a report of an operational implementation and not a uh, real study per se. Um, And I think it shows strengths and weaknesses of operational implementations. So we uh, instituted a group of measures that are all about donor safety with respect to faint and pre-faint reactions. We dropped a couple of measures that we had been doing previously, namely deferring people for high or low BP and having all donors wait for five minutes post-phlebotomy on the bleed chair. And we instituted applied muscle tension or AMT during donation and an organized program of 500 mLs of water and a salty snack right before donation. And all these were implemented as a sort of package deal. And then we tried to sort out what happened. And that part, a lot of that fell to Sheila. So I think I'll let her jump in with that end of it. Oh, thank you, Mindy. Yes, so we um, we monitored the, um, the donor reactions uh, so vasovagal reactions um, in uh, over a 12-month period uh, following the, um, the implementation, uh, during and, and, and following. Um, and we also used donor surveys because a very important part of this, um, the evaluation was seeing whether or not donors actually are seeing these, um, these interventions and whether or not they are participating in them. So the donor reactions, they tell you that um, what happened, you know, did you get an increase or a decrease in reactions? Um, but it'll only, it's only meaningful if you know that people um, are participating in the donor wellness activities. So actually, they did participate uh, quite well, particularly with the water and the salty snacks. Uh, the um, applied muscle tension, uh, perhaps not uh, not quite so well, but that may be because uh, donors uh, didn't see the, um, the the need for uh, to do that if they felt that they didn't very often have reactions or they didn't have them at all. Um, and we did see a, uh, a reduction in donor reactions, in donor vasovagal reactions, when we implemented uh, these uh, donor wellness activities that were sustained over the time of the, uh, of the study. Uh, so that was uh, very encouraging. Um, and uh, I, should, I would also like to add that one of the important features of this study is that uh, we were doing an operational implementation 
and we made use of operational data that, um, and, and including the reaction uh, monitoring and the, um, the donor surveys. These were our this is our routine data collection at Canadian Blood Services. So we were able to use that to monitor the impact of this intervention. Can you tell us a little bit more about the applied muscle tension? How do donors do that? Sure, I can jump in on that. So uh, doing a bit of a literature review about different interventions, there is no one gold standard and people do a variety of different things. There had been a couple of nice studies from Australia about applied muscle tension and they had a nice kind of card that they had developed from the don- for the donors. And so basically, we uh, obtained that from them. <laughs> and we also got some information from the UK, because they were using applied muscle tension. So we tried to kind of do a bit of a mashup of the two approaches, and make a, a nice visual card for the donors. We tried a slightly different version in Eastern Canada and Western Canada, but that really didn't pan out as being different enough to be able to assess if these things were really working better or worse. And uh, we copied the card and it was supposed to be handed to donors right before their donation. And also some sites sort of photocopied it and put it under the plastic on the donation chair. And um, some sites also had it on a, we have these camp, these, um, kind of endless loops of um, on a TV screen while you're waiting to donate in our in our fixed sites. And uh, some sites had a little loop that we had produced that also emphasized that messaging. So we tried various approaches, but um, as Sheila said, of the three interventions, that was the one that had the worst participation. I think it ended up being about 40% of people said that they did it. Um, which may be an overestimate, right? People want to tell you something positive. So uh, maybe it was actually not even as good as that. How did you come up with the idea for these wellness initiatives? What led to this project? The initial impetus for the project, I would say it was twofold. Firstly, our operations group is always looking for efficiencies, and they were wondering if they could drop uh, measuring donor blood pressure and deferring people who were out of range. And secondly, uh, they did not want to have all donors stay on the bleed bed for five minutes post-donation. They wanted to do that just for first-time donors. So, you know, I reviewed the literature on those uh, items, and they had been implemented without much data, to be honest, and there's quite a lot of variability of practice internationally. Uh, While doing this, though, I did notice that other people were doing quite a few other things that I thought we were not doing so optimally in our shop, Um, in particular, the hydration and salty snacks pre-donation and the applied muscle tension. So I thought um, a good way to sort of package those and sell them would be to have it be a total initiative that we would baptize the project, the donor wellness initiative, and um, that it would be safest to remove things when we were adding other things and thought that we really were practicing to the best of international ideas on the topic. 
Uh, so not just agreeing to remove some things, but also saying, well, if we want to do that, I think we'd better be best in class on all these other things that have all shown some benefit in reducing reactions. Was this the first uh, Canadian Blood Services donor wellness initiative? No, we've done several other initiatives. So the one that we did a few years ago was looking at whether we should have different um criteria for estimated blood volume for younger donors. And we always like to both look internationally at studies, what other people have done, and also try and get a little bit of our own data. Partly, we think that our own data motivates more action in our own place because it's a little harder to ignore when uh, you look at your own data, right, than when you read some article and you think, oh, well, but that doesn't happen in our place. And the second thing is when you have your own data, then you can follow post-implementation what happened and you could maybe estimate a little more what the impact's going to be in your place if you make a change. So because we were not asking donors their height and weight, it was hard to know um, what some kind of, what impact there would be on us if we had differential criteria based on estimated blood volume. And it was going to be impossible to say if there was a link between increased reactions and, um, you know, low estimated blood volume, as had been shown by by Talent, then called United Blood Services, and the American Red Cross. So we actually did a study, I'm using the royal we, but it was Srila. What we decided to do was to do a donor survey uh, electronic survey where we asked donors who had donated recently if they'd had a reaction and we asked them what their height and weight was and we asked them their age and so we saw that indeed we were not really any different <laughs> from these uh, U.S. blood operators and we too uh, had younger age female sex and low estimated blood volume first-time donor status as uh, risk factors for for reactions and that's when we put in criteria that you had to have a minimum estimated blood volume of 3.5 liters if you were a first-time donor before your 23rd birthday, so 17 to 23. We don't collect from 16-year-olds. So we had done that a few years ago. And then since then, we had not really changed many policies around faint and pre-faint reactions. And I don't know if you want to add something, Sheila, about that study, but that was a study that enabled us to, to get some of our own data and estimate how many donations we would lose to, uh, how many donors fell into that category of um, low estimated blood volume in those age groups. Well, I think what I want to add is that uh, when you do the um, a donor survey, you can capture a lot more reactions than you can operationally. So when you do the survey, you can get uh, find out if people had a reaction after they left the, the, the clinic. And we also are able to capture uh, feeling un, unwell or feeling lightheaded, which we don't capture in our, our, um, our statistics from the blood center. Uh, we only capture uh, moderate and severe reactions, which involves a little bit of a loss of consciousness. So, uh, so 
these other studies have uh, the, it's a combination of different data, um, and and so these other studies uh, they all uh, bring together information that helped us to move forward to uh, plan this study. Why was the decision made to implement many changes at the same time, such as the water, the salty snack, and the applied muscle tension all at one time instead of in a stepwise fashion? Well, there was a little bit of a stepwise in that we implemented the water, salty snack, and applied muscle tension, and then a few months later, we dropped the BP. Um, You know, I have to say I was happy about that from a medical safety perspective, but it was really because IT could not change the field about BP at the same time. But, you know, sometimes a lag is a good thing. Um, Anyone who's tried to push anything operationally that's primarily coming out of the medical group knows that it's easier to bundle things together, right? all these changes need a lot of push to overcome the inertia of a large organization. Um, they need a lot of communications to staff and to donors. And all that is best done kind of as a bit of a package, right? So although from a scientific perspective, it's not a very clean experiment in terms of it would be much nicer, right, to change one thing, see what happens, change another thing, see what happens. Um, You know, in the real world, you're not going to get that many chances to change procedures in in, in, uh, donor clinics. So you're much better off um, saying, well, this is the package. We're all going to work on this for the next few months. And and then we're going to implement and see what happens. It does make for a messy analysis post-implementation, but it's a much more uh, operationally feasible kind of a thing. Something I always like to ask people about is what was the most difficult part? You mentioned for removing the pre-donation blood pressure, you had to get an IT change, which can be difficult. But what was the most difficult part of implementing the more simple parts of the donor wellness, such as the water and the salty snack? Yeah, I would say... For me, the most difficult part is motivating staff um, and donors to do something differently from what they did before, you know. Um, So our staff had to become a little bit salespeople to encourage donors to drink the water, uh, eat the snack, do the AMT, and that's a little extra work for the staff, right? Um, and then donors, 90% of donors in our system are repeat donors. So, you know, they donated before and they didn't do those things. And most of them didn't have a reaction. So why now do they have to do all these things, right? So I think participation is difficult. Um, maybe not that different from vaccination campaigns, <laughs> Um, you know, like it, it's hard to get to people to change their behaviors. And then I think it's hard to sustain. And that we kind of had to drop a lot of things because of uh, COVID-19 changes. But that also would be a challenge. So, OK, there's the first push in a project, but then it's it's some it's old news. Right. And other things are happening. Uh, how do you get people to sustain 
day in, day out, offering that, pushing that, selling that. I think we got a little wind in our sails with some of the staff saying, gee, we're seeing fewer reactions. And, you know, reactions are a lot of work for the staff um, and not fun to see, right? So there was getting some good momentum where staff had a positive feedback loop, but it's not easy to get new procedures off the ground that require participation. It's not an imposition, right? It's not a tube being sent for a test on a given machine. That's easy peasy. But getting somebody to do something differently, that's hard. That's right. The surveys were very helpful in motivating staff. So as they could see more and more donors saying that they had noticed the uh, the water and salty snacks and saying that they were um, having them and that they felt better after donating. Um, and likewise, the, an increase in uptake of the applied muscle tension. Uh, that helped to motivate staff to work a little bit harder and be more focused at the collection site. I should add that we have uh, quite a few mobile collection sites. And so for I think it's a little easier in a permanent site where you have everything set up and you everyday uh, people, the donor will come in and the snacks and, and the water will be all be in the same place where they can see them. For the mobiles, every time they go to a mobile, the staff have to think about where am I going to put these? How will they be most visible? Um, it's a different setup each time. So it, the, there, is, there, there is quite a lot of operational uh, focus that needs to go into this. So one of the things your group did was to stop the pre-donation blood pressures. Is there a cost of foregoing this incidental health check for donors? Did they get a benefit from it that they're now missing? Have you noticed any response from the donors about that? That's a good question. We were a bit concerned about that, uh, that a lot of donors would miss having their blood pressure checked. We did do a little survey of our um, managers on our sites to, to see if they were writing the BP down for donors or because uh, some sites have been doing that in the past. Um, and we also did, I believe, some surveying of donors, uh, if I recall, Sheila, uh, also as part of an operational survey to see how many were uh, looking forward to having their BP measured. It didn't look like it was that important. I think over the years, more people have access to measuring their BP in the pharmacy or at home, and less were relying on our BP measurement. It definitely was part of the messaging for staff in terms of explaining to donors why we didn't think that BP measurement was really all that accurate anyway. Uh, given the setting of a, you know, pre-donation setting where people are nervous and given that the cuff was not necessarily the right size for the donor, it's being done on one arm and, you know, it's not really being done in a diagnostic way, right? So, um, and it actually did not turn out to be a major issue, Um it's interesting, I find, with these operational changes, much worry occurs before they happen. And often the thing that doesn't work out great is not the thing you worried about. <laughs> um, and that, in spite of 30 years' experience, I'm still amazed at how we have worries and um, they're okay. And then something else maybe we didn't think about or we didn't think would be an issue 
uh, turns out that that was where the pushback was or where we maybe could have used a little more planning. So that actually went not so badly. Yeah, most people are more concerned about high blood pressure than low blood pressure. But we have found that most of the people who have a high-ish normal, normal or high blood pressure when they come in, um, they already know that they have hypertension. So it's what well, they would be under a doctor's care. So the, the benefit of the blood pressures was probably fairly low. Previously, you had deferred folks with high blood pressure. What was the reason since usually we associate more vasovagal and what you saw as well was more vasovagal happened in people with low blood pressure. So why were people with high blood pressure deferred in the past? Yeah, so for this, you have to go back to the dawn of time, which luckily I was working then also. So (laughs) uh, I think around 1997, um, the Canadian Red Cross, which was the blood supplier for Canada at the time, did a cut and paste of what was happening in the U.S. when um, blood pressure, pulse, and temperature were being introduced. Uh, I don't know if you remember that or if it was before your time, Yara, But anyway, um, so this was just imported wholesale. There was not a lot of data that this was really a worthwhile endeavor, but it it was implemented. And that, as you know, because the U.S., I think, still does this, had both an upper and a lower limit of what was acceptable for temperature, uh, well, for BP. There was also... So um, a pulse rate that was had an upper and a lower, an irregular pulse. Well, we, we got rid of the pulse business a few years ago, but we still had the, uh, the, the BP. But there was really not data behind that. Um, I, we tried to do some kind of assessment in our study, uh, in our implementation, where we tried to keep measuring BP in first-time donors, whereas, you know, the reaction rate is much higher, so that we could learn something. Because, as you know, if, you, if you're going to defer people for something, you're never going to learn <laughs> if it would have been safe for them to donate because they are not donating. So um, we, try, we thought, well, why don't we measure BP and allow them to donate, and we'll get a data set on people with high and low BP out of range who we would have previously been deferring and see if they actually have more reactions. On the medical side, I would have liked to do that for all donors. But on the operation side, obviously, they wanted to stop doing BP. (laughs) Uh, So the compromise was that we would continue for first-time donors. So, you know, we have a small data set there, which I think is not that conclusive because the confidence intervals are huge, Um, but it shows something. And then again, we were going to monitor for longer. And then with COVID, we we thought, well, we can't really justify taking BP just to do monitoring when our staff and donors are concerned about the extra contact between donor staff and a piece of equipment with COVID. So we had to just kind of drop it. Uh, I think it, the study does show that overall it probably really does not contribute very much to safety when you look at it in the scheme of things, you know, with all those other mitigating um, factors that you can, and mitigation steps that you can put in because the reaction rate dropped, even though 
we weren't accepting people with with uh, high and low BP. And I'm not sure why high BP was ever um, thought to be a problem because I agree. If anything, maybe the BP go down a little bit. Um, and um, I, I don't. There was not much data either way on the BP front when I did my little uh, literature review. Yeah, I, I agree. Um, a lot of these criteria, my, my personal theory behind many of the health criteria that were grandfathered in is that they were just things that people said, well, this is how we usually define a person as healthy. And these are things that are perhaps not healthy. So we should only accept people who have this healthy um, criteria. But it really wasn't evaluated in terms of does this make any difference to blood for blood donation and does it have any impact on the recipient for some of these criteria? So the reevaluation now has has focused a lot on you know asking those questions: Is this really necessary? Do we uh, is there any any benefit to the donor or to the recipient from various health criteria? And it is an evolving area. Well, thank you. This has been a great conversation. I really enjoyed talking to you about it. And that's our show. Thank you to Dr. Goldman and Dr. O'Brien for joining us for a great discussion. This has been Yara Park for Transfusion's monthly podcast. See you next time. Thanks. Thanks.